0: Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you once again that you have allowed us to gather corporately in this way and to say hello to our friends in the comments and to feel, God, um, as if, even though we're separate, we are coming into your presence together. And so as we do that, God, there's just a few things that we wanna take care of. The first thing is, God, we wanna confess uh, that we are sinful. And as we enter into your presence, um, we, we rest in the truth that you have covered our sins and that you've removed them from us as far as the east is from the west and that we stand on the blood of Jesus and in doing so you welcome us into your presence and so we thank you and praise you for that and we invite your presence with us wherever we are scattered as we are this morning. And God we also ask as we turn now to your word that you would calm our hearts, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and hear what it is that you have to speak to us this morning. I pray, God, in this moment that you would speak through me. I pray that you would give me your words. I pray that you would say, I pray that the, literally the words of life that come from the author of life would be spoken today to these, your children, your beloved children who uh, are here to hear from you. And we, we thank you in anticipation of what you will do in this moment. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful to be back with you this morning. We are starting our new fall series, uh, Happy First Sunday of Fall. We did not plan it so that the fall series started on the first Sunday of fall, but it's kind of cool how that played out, and hopefully that means it's going to be a great series. Uh, We are starting uh, our new series today on the book of Esther, and we've titled that series Hope in Trouble. Now, when I announced that last week, that that was the the series we were going to start this week, um, seriously, I heard from like, half a dozen people, and I think at least two or three of our growth groups have just finished studying the book of Esther, and several other people said, hey, I just read a book on Esther, and so for half a minute, I was like, oh, man, is everyone going to know everything that we're going to talk about in this series? But then cooler heads prevailed, and I just thought, you know what? I think that's confirmation from the Spirit. That, that a bunch of our church has already been sitting in this book, and so I think there's something there 's a message here there 's something in the book of Esther that is going to speak to us that God is going to use to speak to us in this season and at least at least that 's my hope and my prayer, and so we 're going to run with that it 's confirmation that all of you that, that many of you have already been studying uh, the book of esther um, we are i 'm going to hustle i 'm going to try and hustle this morning as best I can. Uh, I want to read the whole first chapter of Esther. Uh, I want to take a few moments just to frame the series. W- what is it? Why are we doing it? What's, what are the major ideas and themes that we're looking for as we go through this series? And then I also want to try and preach a sermon on the first chapter of Esther. So that's a lot of ground to cover. I apologize ahead of time if I sound like the micro-machine man. Anyone born in the 80s knows what I'm talking about. He spoke really fast. I will, I'll do my best not to speak really, really fast. But uh, I am going to try and go a little bit quick. I'm wasting a bunch of time, so let's just get to it, all right? Uh, Esther chapter 1. If you will meet me in Esther chapter 1, again, I'm going to read the whole thing. You can follow along in your Bible or in the verses on the screen. This is what it says. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days." One hundred and eighty days. That's a serious party. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being carshena Shethar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, What is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written along with the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We should have known that it was coming. The warning signs were there and we see them now in hindsight. As 2019 came to an end, we heard some rumors, we saw some news stories, uh, but we didn't realize how serious it was. Now, when the calendar turned to 2020, if you can remember back that long, it seems like 10 years ago now, the seriousness of the situation hit us full force when we found out that Harry and Meghan were quitting the royal family. And as you know, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, as, as, um, as the year started to progress, and I'm gonna take a few moments to recap a bunch of stuff that we already know, um, but it, was just, it has just been unbelievable experience after unbelievable experience. We started hearing, uh, uh, we started hearing rumors, stories, about a virus that was spreading in China. And for a while, that seemed like a distant news story that that didn't really hit that close to home. But as January and February progressed, it kind of built to a fever pitch. And all of a sudden in March, you know, they say March comes in like a lion. And I don't know if there's ever been a year that March has come in like a lion, like this year. When March came in, all of a sudden we realized this was actually very serious and it was going to affect our lives here. I will never forget, on March 12th, when we made the decision to suspend in-person services at our church, I thought that was going to be for 2 or maybe 3 weeks. And here we are now 6 months beyond that. And and as I said, I think I said in one of my devotionals way back then at the beginning, I said something about the hits just keep on coming. Who who could have even known how true that was going to be because it wasn't just COVID which shut down the world, but our economy tanked. Our economy contracted in the spring faster than it has ever contracted in the history of our country. And then the, the killings of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd just ripped the scab off of the, the uh, amazingly deep racial divide that exists in our country. And then, and then into the summer, for those of us here in the West, whatever a dry lightning storm is, we had one. And, 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 and literally the western half of our country is, is, is on fire right now is with unprecedented historical fires. And it's like, it's like whatever comes next, I won't even be surprised because of what a, what a crazy and challenging and difficult year 2020 has been up to this point. And as we sit here today, end of September 2020, and I do not say this to be depressing. I just say this to be like, keep it real. There is not a ton of light at the end of the tunnel. Like there is the the way life looks right now, it, it looks like it's going to look like this for a while. Um, and as I have as I have talked to a lot of us in in the church and outside of the church, and as I have felt it myself, and we've felt it in our own family, um, the emotional roller coaster of the last six months has been has been brutal. Uh, it's been a little bit like a like a sine wave or a cosine wave. That's for my my math people out there. But it just has felt like like these quick quick vacillations between optimism and this is going to be all right and we're going to make the best of it and God's got a plan and we're working through it. And then really quickly, it can become really disappointed and, and not a lot of hope and a lot of frustration. And I'm not sure how much longer I can take of this and I'm not sure how much longer we can do this. And this is really, really difficult. And in these last weeks, as we have transitioned from, uh, from summer into fall, as we're looking at winter coming up, that brutal NorCal winter of temperatures in the low 60s and scattered rain showers, I have just felt a collective sense of, I think there are a lot of us right now who are at the bottom of one of those waves. There is a There are a lot of reasons to be discouraged and, and frustrated, and, and hope is kind of in trouble. And so... So uh, at two weeks ago, th- two and a half weeks ago, as I'm preparing for this message, I open up uh, my Apple News app as I'm thinking about this idea of hope and, and, and how it's kind of in trouble right now. I open up my Apple News app and the first two stories at, that I looked at that day, these are the titles of them. One from the, uh, one from the Wall Street Journal it said, Hope Fades for New Stimulus Checks and Federal Jobless Aid. And another one from the LA Times it said, California Wildfires unprecedented destruction rising deaths and lost hope Uh, there was a man who was a a, a survivor of the holocaust he lost both of his parents he lost four of his siblings his name was Meyer Hirsch and in an interview later in life he said this about hope he said uh, hope is what kept me going a person can survive for a few days without eating but he can't survive without hope for more than a minute and please hear me when i say in no way Am I comparing what we're experiencing right now to the Holocaust in no way at all? But I just think there is a lot of truth in that statement about hope. And as we sit here today, I feel like hope is running low. And so that is why we're going to study the book of Esther this fall. The the book of Esther is a story about hope. And the reason that I'm calling this series Hope in Trouble is I kept that ambiguous on purpose because uh, I think a lot, for a lot of us right now, for the, the moment that we sit in right now, it feels like hope is in trouble. And that is, that is what we're going to see in this story as we start to unpack it week by week. Hope for the, the people of God in the story of Esther. Hope is in trouble. There's not a lot of hope available. But what we also find as we work through the story of Esther is that we have a reason for hope in the midst of trouble. And so that is my, that is my hope, <laughs> that is my hope, that is my prayer, that is my expectation that as we work through the story of Esther in these coming weeks, that we will find that there is a reason to have hope in the midst of trouble. Hope is in trouble, but we can find hope in the midst of trouble. And now, okay, I just want to make a few, uh, a few comments about the, this series in general, about the book of Esther in general. Um, The first thing that I want us to recognize as we turn to the book of Esther is this. Um, The book of Esther takes place outside of the promised land it is one of only a very few stories in the bible one of only a very few uh books of the bible whose setting is not in the promised land and that is critical for us to know for us to get an understanding of what is happening in the book of Esther. see the the history of god's people is this uh he made a covenant with them he brought them into this promised land his presence filled the temple in jerusalem and so for generations god dwelt with his people his chosen people the israelites in the promised land the, the the nation of israel as we know it today but after generations of of wanton disregard for that covenant of 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 obscene sin and disregard for god god allowed his people to be captured to be to be taken over by a foreign nation and deported to be exiled to be taken out of their their promised land but as the prophets had promised now hang on i'm i'm coming i'm i'm this is going i'm going to bring this home in a minute as the prophets had promised long ago those, the Israelites were eventually allowed to return to the Promised Land. And what happens when the Israelites are allowed to return to the Promised Land is very interesting. Not all of the Israelites go back. Some of them stay in the countries which they have been exiled to. And so as we come to the book of Esther, we find a population of Israelites who are living in Persia, in Susa, which is modern-day Iran, the capital, the winter capital of the Persian Empire at that time who have chosen not to return to the promised land of Israel. And so the question that hangs over the book of Esther is this, where is God? The question is, is where is God? A God who has only known, or a people who have only known a relationship with God, living with him, with his presence in the temple, in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the promised land, in a covenantal relationship. Now they're away from Jerusalem, they're away from the temple, they're away from the law and the sacrificial system. And so the question is, where is God? Is he still with them? Is he still for them? What does it look like to be his chosen people living in a foreign land? And what is very interesting about the book of Esther is that it's one of only two books in the entire Bible that never names God. He's not named in the entire book of Esther. And that has caused some people over through, down through history to say it shouldn't be in the Bible for that very reason. But I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's an oversight. I think it is actually a part of the literary genius of the book of Esther, because as the book of Esther is looking to answer the question, where is God? Where is God when it's hard? Where is God in times of trouble? Where is God when things look bleak? It's not an accident that he's not named, because as we are going to see as we work through this book, even though he is not named, he is on every page. His hand, his hand of providence. His working behind the scenes can be seen in every instance in the story of Esther. And I want that to speak to us in this moment that we find ourselves in today, because a lot of us right now are thinking, where is God? Where is God in the midst of this? Is he still for us? Is he still working? Is he still working for our good? And the answer that we find in the book of Esther, and that I want us to, to to internalize for ourselves, is that he is even when it doesn't, even when you can't see him, even when his name is not written on the page. God is at work, and that is as true as it was for the people of Israel in Susa, 400 years before Christ. It is true for his people in the Bay Area today. God is still at work, and therefore hope. There is still reason for hope. In the midst of trouble. So that's the series. Now we're going to look at the first chapter. We're going to turn to the first scene of the book of Esther. And in, I'm, I'm running low on time. We're going to try and hustle through a message uh, that, that we can pull out of this uh, first chapter of Esther. And when we think about the first chapter of Esther, if, if, I could, if I could give you one word that I think is the theme for this chapter, that word is control. I think the word, the word for Esther chapter one is control. And the question that it's beginning to answer is who is in control? And so in light of that, the first thing that I want us to see in this text that we just read is that there is only room for one on the throne. There is only room for one on the throne. We are introduced in the first verses of this book to this King Ahasuerus. He is the King of Persia, and he is better known in history books by his Greek name, that's his Hebrew name, He's better known in history books by his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, reigned over the empire of Persia from 486 BC to 465 BC. And at that time, the the empire of Persia was the largest kingdom in the history of the world, the most powerful, the most wealthy. He would have been the, the, the most wealthy and most powerful king on earth. And what we see in the first nine verses of this book, the first nine verses of this chapter, is a description that fits what would have been the wealthiest and most powerful king on earth. We find that he is giving a feast. We're told that it's a 180-day party. And, and he in that feast, verse four, he is showing the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days. And we get to skip down to verses six and seven. We see that these two par- these parties parties, Several of them, and those are a big theme in the book of Esther. Just hang on to that in, the, in your back pocket. Banquets and feasts, they come up over and over in this book. But we see the description talking about things like purple and silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold and silver, mosaic pavement of porphyry, whatever that is, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones, drinks from golden goblets. And what I want us to see is that in all of Scripture, the only descriptions that match the de- type of descriptions we find here in the first nine verses of Esther are descriptions of God and the temple. The author of Esther wants us to make somehow in our minds some kind of comparison between what it's saying about King Ahasuerus and what the Bible has to say about God. So hang on to that. We're told that this is a 180-day feast. And what most scholars believe, and this is really cool, what most scholars believe is that, not, that this was not just some random party. Remember I told you Ahasuerus started his reign in 486 B.C.? What he is best known for historically is his failed invasion of Greece in 481 BC. And so what we're told, if you remember in verse 3, it says this is the third year of his reign. So we're in 483 BC, two years, 18 months before his invasion of Greece. So what most scholars believe is that this is not just some random six-month party. This is the Great Persian War Council, in which they were preparing and planning for their invasion of Greece. This is a sales job for Ahasuerus. He is trying to raise Series A funding for the military endeavor he wants to embark on. Persia was a widely divergent kingdom of many people groups and many countries and nations which had been conquered. And so what we believe is happening here is he has gathered all of the power players in his kingdom to the winter capital of Susa, And for six months, he is making a display to them of how wealthy he is and how powerful he is and how much control he has so that they will come along with him on his military endeavor to to Greece. He is saying to them in this moment, I am the greatest and therefore you should follow me. But here's the problem. What we find out just a few verses later is that he is a fraud. He He is an imposter. We find out that for whatever reason, and there are a lot of theories, and we don't know, we, that's what all that they are, they're theories. He wants to show off the queen. He wants to show off his wife to all of these power players in his kingdom. And we're told in verse 12 that she refuses to come. Now we're going to dig into that a little bit more in the second, second point of this message. But we need to see that this king, who is trying to make a show of how powerful and wealthy and how much control he has, doesn't even have control of his own home. He can't even get his own wife to do what he wants. And so when I said that this point is there is only room for one on the throne, what I mean by that is there is a throne which someone is sitting on today, and that is God. And he doesn't let other people sit on his throne. But what Ahasuerus thought, whether he would have been able to articulate it or not, was that he was the one who was on the throne, but he was not, he couldn't, he, he didn't, he wasn't even king in his own house. There is only room for one on the throne and God is the one who is sitting on the throne. Some of you will remember uh, when you were growing up um, and maybe as an adult, but that's a little bit weirder to play musical chairs as an adult. When you were growing up, there was a game that we would often play called musical chairs. And the way that that game works is uh, some people walk around, a, uh, walk in a circle around chairs while music plays. And when the music plays, everyone has to find a chair, but there's always one less chair than there is people walking around. And so every time someone doesn't have a chair, they get eliminated and a chair gets pulled out and it gets to the end and there's two people and one chair and the music is playing and they're circling around that chair and circling around that chair. And though I don't believe that the game of musical chairs is intended to be violent, it oftentimes gets physical when it comes down to the last two, because when the music stops, there's one chair and there's two backsides. And each person is trying to use their backside to knock the other one off of the chair. And what Ahasuerus was trying to do with God is what you and I try and do with God all the time. We, whether we, we may not lust after worldly power and wealth in the way that Ahasuerus had it. But there is an inclination in each one of our hearts that we want to be the king or or queen of our own kingdom. We want to be the one in control. We want to be the one calling the shots. We want to be the one who decides where we go and when we go there and why we go there, what we do and why we do it and when we do it, what we eat and why we eat it and when we eat it. We want to be king of our own kingdom and we are constantly bumping, trying to bump God off the throne of our lives so that we can run the show. But the problem is we do a terrible job Of being king or queen of our own kingdom when we try and run the show it turns into chaos and that is exactly what we are going to see happens with Ahasuerus as we continue to move through the book of Esther there is only room for one on the throne and and may we put the right one on the throne and it is not ourselves so only room for one on the throne second thing I want us to see in this chapter life is not a series of coincidences Life is not a series of coincidences. I thought about calling this point, life comes at us fast, because one day you're the queen and the next day you're not, but that, that didn't fit so well in the flow of the sermon. Life is not a series of coincidences. So we got this huge party. Ahasuerus is trying to show everyone how great and powerful and mighty and wealthy he is, and he makes this decision. We don't know why. He makes this decision that he wants to bring in his wife, the queen, and show off her beauty to everyone who is there, get to verse twelve. Uh, he sends the seven uh, eunuchs to, to to get her. We're told in verse twelve, but Queen Vashti refused to come to at refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Just see the scene: huge party, music is playing. Ahasuerus is at the head table. You can hardly hear yourself because there's so many people. And here come the seven eunuchs in a side door. And they kind of scurry along the wall because they don't want to be seen. And one of them comes up behind Ahasuerus and he says, she said no. And he's kind of partying and having fun with the people next to him. And he's like, she said what? And he goes, she said no. And the music screeches to a halt and all the conversation stops and everyone looks at the king because in this moment, the one who is trying to show them that he's the most powerful guy in the, in the world, that they should follow him into battle, he can't even get his own wife to do what he says. These are two little decisions, two decisions. One decision by him to ask his wife to come out on display for everyone who's here at the, at the, at the party. And another decision by his wife, to say no. We don't, again, we don't know why. The author doesn't tell us why. Lots of theories. That's all that they are. They're theories. All we know is that two decisions were made, and those two minor decisions. Now, Vashti may have known her decision would have some serious ramifications. We, we don't know that for sure. But two min- relatively minor decisions that have implications for un- the entire kingdom, and, and God uses those two minor decisions to literally save his people, to deliver them out of annihilation. Life is not a series of coincidences. What the world would look at and say, wow, what a coincidence, she wouldn't go see her husband, and so she lost her position as the queen, God is using, God is orchestrating behind the scenes to to facilitate deliverance for his chosen people. Um, Some of you know our story, and I'm not going to rehash the whole thing right now, Uh, but I know. All of us can look back uh, in the rearview mirror of our lives and see moments where it looked like a coincidence, but but we know in hindsight that it wasn't a coincidence. I I went to college. I met a beautiful young woman in college named Beth, and I fell in love with that young woman. And uh, uh, ultimately, I married her, which um, was really, really good. Uh, Before we got married, while we were still in college, Beth's family moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And they got involved. They got very involved in a church there in Memphis. And one of the pastors of that church was a guy named Brian Loritz. And uh, and and they spent some years in Memphis. And I married their daughter and got to know obviously their family and went to visit them in Memphis. And then they they moved away from Memphis. And uh, Beth and I went on with our lives. And 12 years later, I'm in I'm in a business career. And Beth and I sense that God is calling us out of that out of that life and into potentially ministry. And so we we moved to the Boston area and I enroll at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary as a Master of Divinity student. And in my first semester at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Pastor Brian comes to, to teach a week-long intensive course on preaching. And I connect with him a little bit there, but don't really have any more contact with him after that. And then Two years and two and a half years later after that, I'm getting ready to graduate from seminary. I'm trying to figure out, God, what are you doing and w- w- what are you doing with my life and, and where are you calling me to? And I, I just, I, I decide to, to lean on my meager network of connections in ministry. And I, and I, I email Pastor Brian, not looking for a job at all, just, just saying, hey, here's my resume. If you know of anyone who's looking to hire, would love for you to, to pass this on. And, and he says, we might be looking to hire someone here at our church. And here I am. Two years later, here at Abundant Life in in Mountain View, California, and and God used what looked like just random coincidences. Over the past 15 years, he has shaped the trajectory of my life out of those, those coincidences. The world looks at something like that and they say, what are the chances? But the follower of Jesus looks at something like that and says 100 out of 100. The chances are 100 out of 100 because life is not a series of coincidences. Life is a series of divine appointments orchestrated by God as He moves us through the path that He has prepared for us for His life. Now, I know we can get into some deep discussions in this moment about God's sovereignty and how that interacts with human free will. We are running out of time. I don't have time to go into that, and I'm kind of grateful for it. That's for another, that's for another sermon, but life is not a, a, a Life is not a series of random coincidences. It is, a, it is a series of divine appointments. And I want us to take some, some hope from that in the season that we sit in right now because COVID-19, everything that is happening in 2020, God is not surprised by. This has not caught him off guard. This is not some random coincidence that fate has thrown our way and God isn't sure what to do with it. God knows exactly what is going on. And he is working behind the scenes, his perfect plan. And so if things are not going the way that you want them to right now, please find hope in that truth that God is at work even if we cannot see it. If you have lost your job in this season, That is not because of some random coincidence or some bad decision you made a few months ago or a few years ago when you took that job. God is at work and He has a plan. And though it may not feel like it in the moment, He is working all things for His good. And I believe with all my heart that one day we are going to look back on this season and we are going to say it didn't feel like it in the moment. But now, in hindsight, we can see God's divine hand guiding through what felt like an an empty, silent season from God. He is at work. He is at work today. And we can find hope in that. Life is not a series of random coincidences. Uh, Okay. There's only room for one on the throne. Life is not a series of coincidences. And the last thing I want to see in this passage is that human control is an illusion. Human control is only an illusion. Now, as we look at the rest of this this chapter, uh, I want us to see, uh, because we're going to see it through the rest of the book, there is a lot of irony in the book of Esther. And actually, I would say there is a lot of humorous irony in the book of Esther. So as we pick the story back up, Ahasuerus has been denied by his wife in front of everyone. He has been humiliated. No wonder we're told in verse 12 that he became enraged and his anger burned within him. <clears throat> and again, you see the humor, see the irony in this. Here is most powerful, likely, possibly most powerful man in the world. He's just been spurned by his wife. And look at what he does. Verse 13 and 14. He's, he looks to his buddies. Hey, what should, I, what should I do about this? He doesn't handle matters himself. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't rise up and do what needs to be done. He looks to his friends and asks them, hey, what do you guys think I should do in this moment? The most powerful guy in the world. Hey, what do you guys think I should do in this moment? And here's what they tell him. Uh, his, his, one of his advisors says this, verse 17. The queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So this is what they recommend. Verse 19, let a royal order go out from the king and that royal order will say, verse 20, that all women shall give honor to their husbands. See the humor. See the irony in this. This guy can't get his own wife to do what he wants. And so the solution is, we are going to proclaim to the entire kingdom a law that every woman shall be subject to her husband. Now remember, Ahasuerus has just been absolutely humiliated in front of the power players of his kingdom. And in in, in following the advice of his buddies, his advisors, what he has now done is he has proclaimed that humiliation to the entire kingdom of Persia. From from modern-day Pakistan to modern-day Sudan to Turkey, everyone in the whole kingdom is going to hear about how the most powerful king in the land— could not even get his wife to do what he wanted. What I think this part of the chapter is speaking to, and actually what I think that the whole chapter is speaking to, is it is, it is making a commentary on the illusion of human control. It is mocking, and I, I just go that far, it is mocking the illusion of human power and control in the presence of an all-powerful, omnipotent God. Human control is an illusion. And we have been feeling that in our house recently. Last few weeks, last few months, there have been a lot of tears shed uh, because of the tech issues that have come along with moving into a virtual world, virtual church, virtual staff meetings, virtual school, you know, Zoom, this, that, virtual relationships. And it just seems like something technology-wise is always going wrong. And, and those are just my tears that I'm talking about that have been shed. It's, the, the, the waiting room won't open on time or the internet has gone out or the computer has frozen or keeping track of 10,000 Zoom links or the wrong password. It has been so frustrating and I know I'm not alone. And why has it been so frustrating? Because we look at stuff like, like iPads and computers and Zoom and we think we can control this. This is within our power. But what we get, what we realize, what what becomes really apparent really quickly when we move to an all virtual world is that that stuff is out of our control. It's out of our power. And if I can just say, that is just a microcosm for what has been so challenging in 2020, at the heart of what has been so difficult about 2020. One of the things, I'm not gonna say the only thing, one of the things that has been so challenging in these last six months has been that our illusion of control has been stripped away. We have been confronted in these last six months with how little control we actually have. We cannot control the virus. We cannot control racism. We can't control the economy. We can't control technology. We can't control the royal family. Human control is an illusion. And if we have a worldview that does not allow for an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, benevolent God who is working behind the scenes for His good and for the good of those who love Him, then that reality that we are not in control causes us to freak out. And we are seeing that all over our community, our country, and our world. But! If our worldview does allow for a God who is loving and all-powerful and all-knowing and in control rather than causing us to freak out, our lack of control actually is freeing because it is not up to us. And as we talked about in point one, we do a terrible job when we try to be king or queen of our kingdom. And so the fact that we are not in control is freeing. Because we can give control up to the one who is control. And where we are limited, he is limitless. Where we are faithless, he is faithful. Where we are powerless, he is powerful. Human control is an illusion. And I say thank God for that. And that, as we wrap up this message today, is where we find the hope in the book of Esther. This is where we find the hope. There, Where we begin to find the hope in the book of Esther. There is a king who is sitting on a throne, who is in total control of everything. I want to read you a passage. I want to read you from the prophet Daniel. It's a vision that he had. And as I read this description of what he saw, think about the description that we just read of King Ahasuerus here in Esther chapter 1 and compare the two. This is Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And his name is Jesus. And he is the one who is worthy of all of our honor glory and praise. The same God who delivered his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm doing miraculous and powerful signs of wonder is the same God who delivered his people from annihilation in Persia through what looked like random coincidences and human circumstances. And he is the same God who through his son, Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and raising his son up from the dead delivers his people today from the curse of sin and the curse of death. He is the same God who is right now walking with us through the fire and through the flood. There is a sovereign, powerful king who is sitting on a throne that is not made by human hands. He is in total control. And he is the one who is worthy of our allegiance, our devotion, and our praise. He is the one worthy of following into battle. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is in control. And he is the reason for our hope. God, we thank you. We thank you that you're in control and that and that you are the reason for our hope. And that we, though we, we want so badly to be in control, that it is so much better, God, that you are the one who is in control. We ask that you would give us hope as we, um, as we continue to slog through this difficult season. Uh, we ask that you would help us to engage with each other and with those who are around us and spur each other on towards love and good deeds and to the hope that we find in you. We pray that you would bless this study of Esther in the coming weeks. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you have something that you'd like prayer for, we would love to pray for you. Uh, you can reach out to us at prayer at ALCF.net. If you want to know more about what it means to walk with Jesus and the hope that is found in Jesus, uh, we would love to talk to you about that as well. You can email us at info at ALCF.net. Now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again, or until our Savior comes, and then forever. Amen.